Well, it's nice to be with you once again. Praise God. I, I hear that you've uh, warmed up the weather for me. Changing the calendar by tomorrow for, to get a bit nearer to Nairobi. It's uh, good to be here with you. Now, over these times we have together, I want to talk to you about Jesus. My, my theme is the real Jesus. I've been speaking on that everywhere for the last seven months. I began in Westminster Chapel in August, and I've been preaching everywhere on the theme of Jesus for the last seven months. I probably will carry on for the next couple of years. It's a big theme, the real Jesus. It's the biggest theme of the Bible. It's the biggest theme in the history of the world. The entire world revolves around the person of Jesus. There are more Christians in the world, or people who call themselves Christians, than any other kind of faith or ideology. He has been more written about. There are more books about Jesus than any other person who's ever lived in the history of the world. Before this conference is over, half a dozen more new books about Jesus will be out. They come off the press daily, dozens and dozens of them every month, lives of Jesus and attacks on Jesus and all sorts of things. He is the central figure of the Bible. And I've been trying over the last... uh, certainly over the last seven months, even even longer, trying to uh, summarize, as it were, the teaching of the Bible. I've spent a lot of my life trying to expound Scripture and some of these things on the bookstall or the printed versions of what I've preached over the years. But at the moment, I'm not so much uh, trying to expound Scripture. I'm more asking a different question. When you've, when you've expounded Scripture, you've read your Bible and you've read your Bible and you've read your Bible for years and years and years, the, the day ought to come where you begin to ask yourself, well, what do I believe after all of this Bible exposition? After you've expounded Scripture to yourself or to others or whatever, what is it that you believe having done that? When you've read your Bible and you reckon you've got some idea what, it, what it's about and you've tried to expound it to yourself, when it's all over, when all that is all over, what do you believe? What's your doctrine? What's your teaching? What do you now believe after you have expounded scripture? And that's what we normally call systematic theology. I, I, I'm not terribly fond of that term. Paul's phrase is the whole counsel of God. Remember he, he said to the Ephesians, I've I've not been afraid to uh, declare unto you the whole counsel of God, the entire picture of everything God has given me to teach and preach. And so recently, over the last uh, five years or so, I've been not so much trying to expound Scripture. I I reckon I had my first run through of the Bible in the, around about the year two, 2007. Since about 2007, I've not been trying to expound Scripture so much as to summarize what one ought to believe at the end of it all. Uh, that's really where I am now. So I'm asking myself the question, I'm trying to share it with everybody. What is it that we should believe about Jesus? What's our total picture of the Lord Jesus Christ? As I say, it's, it's a massive subject. It's really the whole Bible. Every verse of the Bible is really about Jesus. Of the 27 books of the New Testament, I think something like 23 of them mention Jesus in the first verse. As soon as the the guy picks up his pen, he's immediately writing about Jesus. The vast majority of the books of the New Testament mention Jesus immediately. In the very first verse, they're talking about Jesus. The Bible has more to say about Jesus than it does about God the Father. 
the Bible has more to say about Jesus than it does about the Holy Spirit, the central figure in the Bible. It's not God the Father, it's God the Son. God so loved the world that he sent his Son. That's the theme of the Bible. Although the Bible's a, a Trinitarian book, but still it's true to say that there's more about Jesus, certainly in the New Testament, and I would argue even in the Old Testament, than there is about the Father, or there is about the Holy Spirit. It's a massive subject. It's such a massive subject that um, you can hardly get your mind around it. And uh, what I want to do tonight is to, to just start, and I'm not quite sure how far I'll get, but uh, what I want to do tonight is just to introduce it to you a little bit, this uh, gigantic subject. And uh, we'll see how far we go. And then I'll take up a few particular topics. Over the months and the years, I've been speaking on things like Jesus as a person in history. He actually existed on planet Earth. He's a real historical figure. Jesus, the man with a message, he knew what he was coming for. He knew what he had to preach. Jesus, a man of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, a man of the Bible, a man of the Old Testament. Jesus, a man of prayer. Jesus, a man of miracles. Jesus, a controversialist. Jesus, the answerer of questions. You never find Jesus ever saying, any, ever refusing to answer a question. No matter what they threw at him, he answered. Jesus, the answer of questions. Jesus, the teller of parables. There came a certain point where he decided to uh, start teaching people in parables. Jesus, the Son of Man who rides upon the clouds of heaven. That's a, a phrase that the Bible uses. Jesus, the breaker of traditions. He was constantly breaking traditions. Jesus, who deliberately broke the Sabbath. He would uh, see that every time he, he did something on a Saturday with the Sabbath, it annoyed people. It annoyed the Pharisees. So he did it some more. He deliberately annoyed them. Seeing, seeing that they didn't like it, he would do the, the very thing he did not want them, they did not want him to do. It was his way of saying, the law is finished. Yeah, that, that's why he did it, I believe. And then Jesus' character. What an amazing character he has. His wisdom, his truthfulness, his faithfulness his compassion, his love, his mercy, his patience, his purity, his righteousness, his zeal. He would, go into, he would go away coolly and calmly and make a whip and come back to the temple and drive everybody away who was misusing his temple. And they would say, the zeal of the Lord has consumed him. What a, what a man of zeal and enthusiasm he was. He could be a man of anger. He could get angry at people's hardness of heart. He was a man of joy. He could rejoice. He was a man of power. That's what you felt about him when you met him. He, you could tell he had authority. He was not like the scribes. They, they never had this kind of feeling of authority about them. He was a man of liveliness. There was nothing boring about Jesus. He was lively. He was a man of stability. His character didn't change. He was steady. He was a person of self-sufficiency. He was totally a sufficient within himself. He was like that even as a boy. As a 12-year-old boy, his parents took him up to the temple, and as they were going back home, Jesus wasn't with them. They didn't bother about him for a whole day. I mean, imagine your son just disappears for a day. Never bothered them in the least. Actually, three days went by before they, they found him. A whole day went by before they even started looking. Another couple of days went, more went by before they found him. 
Imagine you had a son who disappeared and for a day he didn't even bother. What would that say to you? What would that mean? It would mean that your son was so capable of looking after himself. If he went missing for a day, you weren't even bothered about it. He was so self-sufficient. And then when they found him, he was there at the temple, relaxing with these great, great scholars in the, in the temple, asking all sorts of questions. Everybody was amazed at his wisdom. He was so self-sufficient. He was so meek. He was so friendly. He was so convivial. He was the kind of guy you'd, you'd, ask to a, you'd, you'd invite to a wedding, just for the fun of having him there. He was very submissive. He was obedient. He was tender. He could, he could break down and weep at the death of Lazarus, even though in five minutes' time he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why, why weep at someone dying when you're just about to raise him from the dead? Why, why did Jesus weep? Well, he wept because everybody else was weeping. Have you ever been, have you ever been to a funeral or somewhere and people were unhappy and they're so unhappy that you're getting unhappy as well and, and you're beginning to get a bit tearful because everybody else is tearful? Same thing happened to Jesus. He was so tender that even, even though he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, when other people were weeping, he started weeping with them. He was so tender-hearted, the character of Jesus. Well, as I say, it's an immense subject. And the best way, I think, of um, handling such a, a gigantic theme is to go round it several times. In fact, that's the way you handle any subject which uh, overwhelms you. If you're at university and you have some new subject, educational statistics or... Kantian philosophy or, or some, some, something which totally overwhelms you, the best thing you can do is keep on going round it. And the first time you, you see a few things, and the second time you see a bit more, and you keep on going round and round until eventually it gets clear. That's the way you handle any difficult topic. And with a subject as big as Jesus, I think that's the way you have to do it. And I think there's a lot to be said for learning about Jesus in the same sequence with which the apostles and the disciples of Jesus learnt about him. Because, you see, they had this experience of, as it were, just going round and round the, the person of Jesus. They were there and they saw him and they were living with him in those uh, three years of ministry. And uh, they were slowly seeing more and more and more. And I think there's a lot to be said for learning about Jesus, and certainly that's the procedure I'm following, trying to, to explain or to expound the person of Jesus in the same kind of order that they followed. It's like, um, it's a bit like running around a racetrack. You, you go around and then you do another lap and another lap and you keep on going round and round. How did the disciples learn about Jesus? Well, first of all, they just met him as a man. They could tell that he was a real man. He lived there in, in Israel in the first century. And uh, so they knew he was a, a real figure. They just saw him as a man, and uh, no matter how much amazed they were by him, they, they called him a man, even on that occasion when he was out in the boats, and uh, there was a storm, and Jesus stood up and he calmed the storm. They were amazed, and they said, what manner of man is this? They didn't have any doubts that he was a man. They didn't say, what time of creature is this? What kind of being is this? Is this an angel or what? No, no, they said, what manner of man is this? The only question was, what, what kind of man? You obviously said he was a man, but uh, what, what kind of man is it that can just rule the waves and fall asleep at one moment and be ruling the universe at the next moment? What kind of man is that? But they didn't doubt that he was a man. He had a body and he had human emotions. He was just a man, and they could tell that. But he was an unusual man. He was obviously very spiritually minded. He was obviously a lover of God. 
He obviously was tender and sincere. And then they found he could do miracles. They went, the first big miracle they ever saw was when they went to him to that wedding and uh, he turned gallons of water into wine. And the, and the Bible says they saw his glory and they were amazed and they believed in him. His disciples believed in him. They came to faith. They came to see this was a, a work of miracles. They were with him for, the, for those three years of ministry. They heard all of his messages and his preachings. They saw how he counseled people, how he prayed for people and so on. They were with him for those three years of ministry. They knew the story of his ministry. They knew about John the Baptist and they knew about uh, the transfiguration. They knew how he cleansed the temple. They, they were there for that ministry. But then there came what I, what I think I could call a kind of second phase. There came a certain point. They'd been with him, they'd been with him for a, some time, a year or so. And uh, then there came a time when Jesus took them away. He went into what well, was actually a different country. He went over the border into a different uh, part of Israel with a different ruler where he wasn't so much in danger, in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And he went away for a few days and they could relax there. He wasn't so much in danger. And he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, something like Jeremiah or a prophet or some great teacher back from the dead. And then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And they said, Peter stood up and speaking on behalf, the word you is plural, who do you plural say that I am? And Peter stood up on behalf of the whole apostles and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. They had come to a certain point where they had seen that he was some kind of Messiah. I don't know how much they knew what sort of Messiah he would be, but they, they had come to the conclusion he was the Son of God, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to them, yeah, you're right. He said to Peter, yeah, you're right. And it wasn't the flesh and blood that revealed this to you. It wasn't because of how clever you are, that you, you know what other people don't know. My Father has revealed this to you. You've come to a certain point where revelation has made you see something about Jesus that nobody else sees. And we might, we might come back to that subject later on over this weekend. They, they could see things that nobody else could see, not even King Herod in the same chapter, Luke chapter 9. Herod couldn't see who Jesus was. They could. And it's because, as maybe I might have time to show you, it's because Jesus has been praying for them. The chapter begins in prayer. And uh, he says, no, my Father has shown this to you. And from that point on, they're seeing more. And it actually says that from that point on, he began to say to them, the Son of Man must suffer. He's, he's now beginning to teach them what kind of Messiah he's going to be. The Son of Man's got to suffer. He's not going to come to his glory just, just in any easy way. He's going to go through the cross. He begins to predict his, his death and resurrection. The Son of Man must go up. He must suffer many things. He must be, he'll be crucified on the third day. He'll be, he'll be raised from the dead. He predicts exactly what will happen to him. And they're now entering, as it were, a second Face when they not only do they know that he's the Messiah and the miracle worker, they're actually coming to see what kind of Messiah he is. But still, they're still quite uh, immature. And when Jesus says that he's going to go to the cross, Peter says, No, no, Lord, Lord uh, don't worry, you'll be all right. Uh, this will never happen to you, don't, don't be too depressed. And uh, Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. It's not right that a prophet should die outside Jerusalem. The son of man must go. And they're still fumbling and uh, uh, got a lot of ignorance. But then there comes a new phase. When he is raised from the dead, 
when Jesus is crucified and then is raised from the dead, they begin to see things about Jesus that they had never seen before. For the first time, they start worshipping him as God. Thomas falls to the ground and says, My Lord and my God. Nobody had ever called God, Jesus God, during Jesus' earthly ministry. But after the resurrection, they begin to see things they'd never seen before. They start worshipping him. And Thomas worships Jesus as his God, actually says so. Jesus doesn't reject him, Jesus just accepts the worship. They begin to see that he is the central figure of the Old Testament. Jesus says to them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets wrote and spoke, and beginning with Moses and going through the entire Bible, he shows them in the whole Old Testament the things concerning himself. He begins to teach them how to read the Old Testament. He spends six weeks, he doesn't go back to heaven straight away, he spends six weeks teaching them from the Old Testament that he himself is, as it were, the focal character of the Bible, the very heart and centre of Scripture. I don't think they've seen that before, but Jesus trains them to to know that he is the focal centre of the Old Testament. And they begin to, to use, to understand the titles that they'd use. They called him Jesus, but now they begin to see him, they called him the Son of David, the Messiah. But now they begin to see the meaning of these disciples. They begin to see the meaning of, of the phrase, the Son of God. They begin to see what it means that he is the Son of Man, riding upon the clouds of heaven. A phrase coming from Daniel chapter 7, where someone comes to the Father, riding upon the clouds of heaven, and he's given a kingdom. They begin to see the meaning of these titles and names that Jesus has. And then the Holy Spirit, the next stage is the Holy Spirit is poured out. And Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away. When I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit upon you, and he will lead you into all of the truth. He promises there'll be a yet further stage, things that he's never ever told them, never been able to make clear during his ministry, things that he, he didn't even teach them during the 40 days after the resurrection. He, by the Holy Spirit, will lead them into all of the truth. And they begin to get a total picture of the glory and the greatness of Jesus. They they see that he existed before he was conceived. Jesus is the only person that's ever been in the history of the universe who existed before he was conceived. He was there. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nobody ever saw things like that until after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They begin to see that he is the great high priest who's sitting at the right hand of the Father. They see the kind of things you get in the letter to the Hebrews. They begin to get a total picture of the person of the Lord Jesus. Now that's what I mean by when I say that you're going, as it were, round and round the subject, seeing a bit more and a bit more and getting higher and higher, you're getting a bigger and bigger picture. That's how the New Testament story unfolds. With, as it were, the disciples going round and round, the person of Jesus, and seeing more and more and more. Why should we... Why should we be so concerned about this? What, what, what should this mean to us? Well, it should mean everything to us because the whole of salvation is a matter of living on Jesus. You are a Christian tonight if you have Jesus in your life. 
You are not a Christian tonight if you do not have Jesus in your life. He who has the Son has life, says the Bible. He who does not have the Son does not have life. The dividing line between who is and who is not a Christian is not how good you are, not whether you go to church, not your background, not whether you come from a a so-called Christian country or whatever, not whether your dad is a pastor or whether you've grown up uh, knowing the Bible or went to a Christian school. None of those things are of any importance. It doesn't matter how good you are, it doesn't matter how bad you are, it's totally irrelevant. None of those things are important. The only thing which is the dividing line between the saved and the lost is the person of Jesus. You're a Christian if you have Jesus. You are not a Christian if you do not have Jesus. He who has the Son has life, says the Bible. He is salvation. Salvation is not a system. Salvation is not a book, not even the Bible. Salvation is not an ideology. It's not a routine. It's not a discipline. It's not even a a lifestyle. Salvation is a person. Salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But not only is he the means of salvation, he's also the means of working out salvation. The Bible says work out your salvation. When you've got salvation, you work it out. And he is, he is the key to working out salvation. Whether you are going forward or going backward as a Christian tonight has a lot to do with whether you are feeding on Jesus, whether you are living on Jesus. can't stand still in the Christian life. Nobody ever stands still in the Christian life. You're either going backwards or you're going forwards. No one ever stands still. Either declining and deteriorating, getting hard and hard of hearts, or you're coming more and more and more alive. And the, the, once again, the dividing line between whether you're going forward or backward is how you are relating to the person of Jesus. Uh, this is all over the Bible. The Bible, one verse puts it like this, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so now live in him. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. You began by receiving him. Now as you received him, now live in him. You live in the person of Jesus. Well, Jesus put it like this on the, the last day of his life, of his earthly life. He, he said, unless you eat my body... Unless you drink my blood, it's a very uh, dramatic way of putting it. it sounds a bit sounds a bit cannibalistic, but uh, this very dramatic way. Unless you, unless you eat me and drink me, it's Jesus' way of saying. Unless you are taking me into your system, unless I'm your food, unless I'm your drink, unless I'm the one who's keeping you alive and make, making you able to function. Unless you eat of me, unless you drink of me, I'm the bread of life. I, I came down from heaven to be the bread of life. I'm the living water. Come to me and drink. If any person is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You eat of him, you drink of him. If you do not, you do not have any, have any strength. You don't have any life in you. Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. I'll put it the other way around. If you do eat his body, if you do drink his blood, which means live upon him as the one who died for you. If you live upon him as the one who died for you upon the cross, he gives you life. If you don't eat of him, if you don't drink of him, you have no life, you have no energy, you have no strength. I can do all things, says, says the, the Apostle Paul. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm the one who does all things, but he's the one who gives me the strength. I, I'm the one who does it, but he's the source of the strengths. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm, I'm the one who does what, what I'm being called to do, but he's the one who puts the life, the energy, the strength within me. Out of his fullness, another, another verse says, out of his fullness have we all received... Most translations say grace upon grace. I don't think it's a very good translation. The Greek word there is not upon, but instead of. 
Greek word empty, which means instead of. Out of his fullness have we all received one grace instead of another grace, because the law came through Moses, but grace came in the person of Jesus. You've got one grace. One grace has been finished with. God gave grace to Israel through the law. That's finished with. Now you've got one grace replacing another grace, because the law just was given through a man, but now grace has come. Grace has come in the person of Jesus. Grace came. He doesn't say grace was given. The law was given. Grace wasn't given. Grace came. The person of Jesus is the grace of God. Grace came, says John chapter 1, verse 16, in the person of Jesus. It's all over the Bible. Hebrews puts it like this. It says it's like running a race. And you run this race with your eyes fixed on Jesus. All the time, he's there at the winning post, and you're like running a race. And as you're running that race, you've got your eye fixed upon the person of Jesus. Well, those, those are the reasons why we should be interested and uh, taken up and consumed with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the great centre of our faith. You're, you're going forward according to the extent in which you're living on Jesus. You're deteriorating, or you're declining, or you're getting hard, or you're becoming traditional. To the extent that you're just living on the past, maybe, or living on church, or living on Christian routine, but not living on the person of Jesus. Now, how real is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to you? We're to live on Christ, we're to live on his person. And the teaching of Scripture is that as we do that, the character of Jesus will be produced in us. Remember how Paul says that he wants to see Christ appearing in us, Christ, uh, as it were, almost being born in us, Christ being formed in us, Paul says to the Galatians. He says to the Galatians, I'm really, I'm really troubled about you. I wish I could start all over again with you. I'm in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I want to see Jesus appearing in you. The teaching is that, here's the teaching of the Bible. The teaching of the Bible is that you become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. Remember, Jeremiah says, they went after vanity and they became vanity. You become like what you worship. You worship futile things, you become futile. You worship material things, you become materialistic. You worship worship some God who's just cold and hard and powerful, you just become cold and and hard and hungry for power. You worship Jesus, you'll become like Jesus. As you, as you look in, the Bible says, as you, as you look into his glory, you're changed from one degree of glory to another yourself. As you look at him, you, we with unveiled faith, with nothing in between us and the Lord Jesus Christ, as you gaze at him, his, his image begins to shine in you, and you're changed from one degree of glory to another. You become like what you worship. If you worship the Lord Jesus Christ, if you live upon him, if you see him, you become like him. I don't mean that you imitate Christ. The imitation of Christ, people write these books with titles like The Imitation of Christ. No, no, it's not that. It's not that you're imitating Christ. That doesn't work anyway. Have you ever tried it? Have you ever tried imitating Jesus? I mean, you're wasting your time. It's not that you're imitating Christ and trying to put on a facade of being like Jesus. 
is that the life of Jesus is, as it were, coming out of you. You're, you're, you're in fellowship with him, and something's taking place in your heart. Something's coming out of you. It's not that you're, Im- you're imitating. You don't even notice. Moses, when Moses comes out of the prayer tent, his face is shining. But he doesn't know it. It's everybody else that can see it. He, 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 can't, he can't see it himself. It's, it's, un- it's unselfconscious. It's not, it's not self-righteousness. It's not a, you know, I'm doing quite well, I'm getting like Jesus. No, no, it's not, it's not that. It's just that the character of Jesus, and all these things that I hurriedly mentioned about Jesus, his faithfulness, his wisdom, his self-sufficiency, that they all begin to appear in you. You become like the one that you worship. Well then, three, three preliminaries, three, three great, as you just even begin with this amazing topic, three preliminaries. The first is, we must begin here, that Jesus is a fact of history. And I wish I could uh, spend much more time on that. I'm not going to, but I wish I could. Jesus is a fact of history. And um, this is very important in, in the day in which we live. I don't know whether you've realized this, but have you, have you noticed how the whole notion of history is, as it were, disappearing from modern life? Have you noticed that? The distinction between facts and fiction is breaking down. You go into a bookshop, as I often do, and you'll find, you'll find the, the booksellers don't know where to put the books. You, you go to some history section, it's full of novels. You go to some novel section, it's full of history books. So they, they don't know which is fiction and which is fact. And the most amazing lies are told these days, more so than ever, ever has been, for, been true before in the history of the world. Propaganda is at an all-time high. And uh, this is affecting the story of Jesus a lot. Have you noticed how much the story of Jesus is under attack? Walk, walk into an average bookshop, go into Victoria Station or, any, any, or an airport bookshop, see the kind of common books that are on the, on the shelves in an airport or a, or a railway station or some sort of general bookshop, you'll find that it's full of books that are sort of mythological, plenty of Harry Potter type books there, but, but um, you'll find books with titles like the Gospel of Jesus or the Da Vinci Code or, or, the, uh, or, or the Mary Magdalene Papers, this kind of thing. This uh, writing of novels using the story of Jesus and uh, people, now, there are even churches in different parts of the world that, that are based upon the Da Vinci Code, the, the novel by Dan Brown. It's not only the Christian faith, it's, it's all sorts of other things as well. I don't know whether you're conscious of the extent to which people are beginning to deny that there was ever such a thing as the persecution of Jews under Hitler. They're denying it ever happened. And uh, you see, it's only about now that that can be done. Up until quite recently, there were people still alive who were there in the uh, various uh, camps in Germany and so on. It's only now that uh, the, the actual people involved are no longer around anymore. They've all, they've all died now, more or less. And, uh, and so now, there's the stage of history where people, people can say, no, this never happened. Maybe they took, they took cold showers in certain places in these, in these camps, but really they were, they were being treated quite nicely, really. And the entire thing being totally denied. A couple of years ago, you may have noticed, a couple of years ago it was the 200th, 300th anniversary of the abolition of slavery. 
and the whole world became interested in William Wilberforce. Did, did, you, did you notice that a couple of years ago? And there were various books and films around. And, I, and you may have seen a film known, which was entitled Amazing Grace about uh, William Wilberforce. There was another film that also came out at the same time. You can buy it as a DVD with almost the same title, The Amazing Grace, just, just one word difference. And uh, if you watch the film Amazing Grace, it's all about uh, William Wilberforce. If you watch the film The Amazing Grace, it's all about slavery. But uh, Wilberforce doesn't come into it. And John Newton never wrote Amazing Grace. He was, he was a slave himself. And uh, it was a black guy that wrote Amazing Grace. And uh, it was a black man that uh, campaigned against the abolition of slavery, that, that the black people fought for themselves and got themselves free. It totally rewrites the story of the ending of slavery. And uh, Wilberforce disappears and, and John Newton disappears. And a whole string of lies come out. Why, why should that be? Well, you can understand why it should be. It's because... Uh, we white guys have often been very superior and we seem to do everything and uh, people from Africa get a bit irritated with that at times and you can understand that. But you see, when you get irritated about something, whether it's Jews or whether it's uh, racism or whether it's Jesus, all you do is you rewrite history and you tell the most outrageous lies and it's amazing how, how much people get away with this. And uh, the Da Vinci Code has sold something like 40 million copies, and uh, the guy who wrote it's a multi-multi-millionaire as a result of, of it. And publishers love that thing. You see it every day. There's never a day without you don't see something of that nature. I saw one yesterday. You walk along, you go along the Piccadilly line on the railway line. There's a new film out in the West End. What's it? What's it called? Uh, something like The Enemy Inside. And the, ad the, ad the advertisement is. This is the film that the Vatican does not want you to see. You see, the idea is that uh, the, Christian, the Christian gospel is just a kind of myth. And uh, it's, full, it's full of tales and legends and false gospels. It's all sort of mythical. And uh, the Vatican, they're always writing against the Catholic Church. The, the Vatican really knows this. And uh, go and see this latest film. This is the film that the Vatican does not want you to see. The idea is that the whole of the gospel is sort of fictional. It's all over the place. And, um, and I could say much more about that. I'm trying to resist the temptation to go on for the next two hours on the theme. But um, the answer to the story is, the story of Jesus is one of the most weather-tested facts of history. There were, there, were people, there were people from the day of Pentecost in Rome within a couple of, of weeks of Jesus' death upon the cross. There were 3,000 saved on day one. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, there were 3,000 on day one. Within a few weeks, there were, there were 5,000. The Lord was adding daily to their number. And within a few years, the whole Roman Empire was being dominated by Christians. Tertullian, in the end of the first century, could write to a Roman district governor and say, we have taken over everything. We've taken over your government. We've taken over your marketplace. We've taken over your schools. We're everywhere. If you, if you get rid of the Christians, you'll have nobody left. Only your enemies will be left. We're the only people that pray for you. The, the only thing we've left to you, Sister Tertullian, we've left to you your temple. You can have that. You're welcome to your gods. That's how Tertullian writes. Imagine writing that to, to, a, to a district governor of a Roman province. You couldn't possibly do it if it weren't true. And, and Christians were filling 
the Roman Empire with their numbers, and within, within a few years, 10% of the entire Roman Empire were, were saved. And finally, the Emperor Constantine sort of gives up trying to persecute them and become, declares himself a Christian. You cannot deny those facts of history. What actually happened was something like this, and this is what you need to know. The Christian gospel was so successful that in the second century, not the first century, but the second century, in the second century, people began to say, well, these Christian people who did not like the Christian gospel, Greek philosophers, Platonists, people that wanted alternative, alternative religions and philosophies and ideologies, began to see that these Christians were so successful that they began imitating them. They started writing Gospels, the Gospel of this, the Gospel of Nicodemus, the Gospel of James, and they, they were not Gospels at all, they were Greek philosophy. And, uh, and since about, since about, when did it begin? Around about the 1960s, people have been, dig- occasionally people would dig up these, these manuscripts, normally there's just one copy of it, someone robbed some, some tomb maybe in Egypt and they dig up some, some second century gospel and document which calls itself the gospel of this, that and the other and they say, ah, oh, this is the real Christianity. These, these, these gospels, well that's just a one version. This is the real version. I read of a new one just a couple of days ago. One manuscript has been discovered. It calls itself the gospel of, the gospel of Barnabas. It's at, least, it's at least from the 7th century. It mentions things that happened in the 7th century. So it's written after the 7th century. And now people say, ah, oh, this is the real gospel. There's always a lot of money in it. It always, it, always, it always is blown up by the media. The biggest discovery ever made in the history of the world. This is what the Vatican does not want to know. There's always lots of money in it. Now, over and against all that, and this is especially going to happen, going to be the reason why I bother with this, well, I wouldn't even bother with it, except for this fact, that this is going to be taken up by, by the insurgents of Islam. More and more and more, we're, we're going to get it. The one people who've taken up that one manuscript reported only by the Daily Mail, not, not by some great scholar, but by the Daily Mail. This, this one manuscript reported by the Daily Mail immediately is taken up by Muslims. Ah, this is the real gospel. All this, all this Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John stuff. Well, that, you know, that's, that's just uh, another version. This is the real gospel. First thing we need to assert about Jesus is that he's a fact of history, and it's a ba- it's a troublesome thing in modern life that we don't bother very much about history. There's every reason why we should bother about history. You may not be very interested in history, but I, I have to say to you, if you are not bothered about history, you'll never be able to detect lies. If you are not bothered about what did happen, any Tom, Dick and Harry can write his own version of it. That's one reason why we must be interested in history. And we Christians have nothing to be ashamed of. There's, there's nothing about the Christian gospel that, that we need to be ashamed of. Everything good in our world comes from the Christian gospel. Democracy comes from the Christians. The medicine, education, it all comes from Christians. The trade union movement comes from Christians. Everything good in the history of the world comes from Christians. Is it not? What is it, what is it that the people admire about the world that does not come from the Christian church? Go to some country, a whole world is immigrating at the moment. Everybody wants to be in a different country. The people all want to come to the West. Come, come to, go, go to the British embassy in, in, in Nairobi or, or Lusaka or any country, any country where there's, where there's a, a Western embassy. And you'll find sometimes the queue for getting a visa, it can be 48 hours long. You can camp in a queue for 48 hours before you get to the front asking for a visa and then the answer will be no. Mind you, they're not queuing up to go to Jeddah. They're not queuing up to go to Istanbul or Bangkok. 
It's only to countries that have been, that in the past have been Christian countries. They want to go to Germany, America, France, Switzerland, UK. They don't want, they're not, they're not going to have to go anywhere else. Why is that? It's because everything good, the, the, the relief and the, the care and the minimum wage and, and health, health systems and education and freedom to vote, all these things are in countries that were once Christian countries. They're not in any other countries. No one's queuing up to go to, to any other countries of a, of a totally different ideology. It's only, it's only these Western, fairly wealthy, somewhat gullible countries that they want to come to. We go to their country, they'll persecute us. When they come to, when they come to Britain, we tolerate them. They can, you, can bring, you can believe the most outrageous things. You're still, you, you can get into Britain quite easily. Everything good comes from the Christian church. We are the one people who don't need to fear being investigated. Remember what, Paul, what, what, what uh, was said by the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul was on trial for his life under Festus, and Festus called, called in King Agrippa. You know, I've got, this, I've got this weird guy called Paul. Come and listen to him. And Agrippa is, coming, is brought along. Remember what Paul said? Paul said to Agrippa, Agrippa, find out for yourself. These things were not done in a corner. These things are not some, in some hidey hole that we're afraid you might find out something. These things were not done in a corner. Find out for yourself. King Agrippa, you know about these things. It was your granddad who, who first killed the innocents when Jesus was born. It was your father who murdered James. You know, all, you know about the Christian movement. You've been around for years. You, even your family have been involved. Investigate. Find out. These things were not done in a corner. We can say to the whole world, investigate. Find out. Find out whether Jesus rose from the dead. And if the day of Pentecost did not produce the Christian church, then what did? What produced this movement where fishermen and, and girls from the streets and total non-entities living so far off the edge, end of the Roman Empire that surprised they didn't fall off the end altogether. The, these non-entities at the end of the Roman Empire suddenly sweeping the whole world. If it was not caused by the day of Pentecost, what did cause these converted fishermen and non-entities and lower class people, mainly slaves, what made them t- take over the entire Roman world and create a Christianized empire, whether that was good or bad, is another question. But what led to it if it was not the day of Pentecost? If that is not the explanation, what is the explanation? These things were not done in a corner. Find out. Go and find out for yourself. We can look anybody in the eye and say, go and find out for yourself. There's no fact out there that we are ashamed of. And incidentally, you can do the same thing with every other ideology. Find out, find out what it's really like to live in a Muslim country. Find out what Hinduism is really like. We are the one people who ought not to be afraid of comparative religions. As, Christ, as Christian countries begin to fade in power, and no longer is the Gospel and Bible taught in churches, they replace it with comparative religions. We are the one people on planet Earth who ought not to be afraid of comparative religion. Let's do all the comparing that can be done. Let's compare what happens when the Christian faith is believed. Let's compare what happens when Islam is believed. Let's compare what happens when evolution is believed. You believe you're just an animal. If you believe you're just an animal, you'll live like an animal. How can you regard yourself as an animal and live like a saint? It's not going to happen. You're not going to regard yourself as merely an animal and then live like an angel. Regard yourself as being made in the image of God. It will do something for the way in which you live. We're the, we're the one people who are not afraid of investigation. What does evolution produce? What does Islam produce? 
What a state has produced. What, what did Anglicanism and its greatest power produce? What did Catholicism, when it domineered over states, what did it produce? We're, not, we're the one people who are not afraid of investigating. When you separate church and state, when you let the gospel go forward by its own power, without the slightest hint of force or violence or oppression, merely by the power of its own message, what kind of society does it lead to? Where did science come from? Where did the trade union movement come from? Where did democracy come from? Who, who founded democracy in America? Roger Williams, the Baptist. Who, found, who founded democracy in, in England? What's his name among the levelers? In Cromwell's army. Who, who founded democracy? Who, who were the first people ever wanted to give freedom to everybody? Who were the first people to tolerate Jews in this country? Oliver Cromwell and his Christian friends. Investigate anything you like. You'll find back behind it are the people of God. It's not only England, it's every other country as well. Go to a country like India. Every single thing that's good about India comes from the missionaries. Come and look at, come and look at Africa, Kenya, Zambia. Come, come and look at where anything, where's, where's the oldest school? Where's the oldest hospital? Where's the beginning of their parliamentary system? Where's it all come from? It's always from Christians. These things were not done in a corner. And it all begins with the person of Jesus. It begins with Jesus. He's the one that saves people. Look, look, look at, look at uh, the, the, the tolerance given to women. Here's the whole world wanting to be a bit feminist at the moment. That's all right. Where does that come from? I mean, most, most part in the West we argue, can a woman be a preacher? In most of the world, the question is not can a woman be a preacher, but can we keep the women alive? I mean, the population of women in India is about 10% less than what it ought to be. About 10% of the women, they're not discussing whether they're preachers or not, they're discussing whether they are alive or not, and they're not. About 10% of the women are missing. They don't exist, they're dead. What causes that? Oh, well, what happens when there's a widow, when there's a death and the husband dies and the widow is pushed into some funeral fire? It's illegal, but it happens. Your daughter is sick, you leave her. If your son is sick, take him to hospital. Children, women, you know, they're, they're non-entities. Where does, where does the raise, what, what, what ideology has, has raised womankind? Where, where, where has there been freedom given to women? Where, where did it begin and, and who started this? The trade union movement. Who, who were the first people ever who wanted workers not to be oppressed. Investigate anything. It all comes back to Jesus. Learn that Jesus is the centre of the Bible. Learn that Jesus is a historical figure. And then learn the story of his life. And and I close with this this evening. Learn the story of his life, which actually is easier said than done because... On the whole, not many Christians have much of an idea of the life of Jesus. I wonder if you do. If, you, if I asked you tonight and said, stand up and uh, spend five minutes or so just outlining what you know of the life of Jesus. What, what was Jesus' story? How, how did he go through life? What was he trying to do? Was there any kind of uh, working out of a plan? Is his life a coherent story? Could you tell me the story of Jesus? Probably you couldn't. You probably 
could tell me of certain big things. He'd tell me of uh, the main facts, how he was born, the Christmas story, and uh, how he died upon the cross, and a few things like that. But you probably couldn't really tell me the total story of Jesus. And the reasons for that, it, it goes back to the 19th century, when, and even earlier, the 18th century, when philosophers were deliberately cultivating doubt. People like um, Descartes, the philosopher Descartes, or Descartes, the philosopher, he, he would deliberately say, if anything could be doubted, I wanted to doubt it. I wanted to be absolutely sceptical about anything unless I was 100% sure it was true. I want to investigate things with maximal doubts. And unless, unless something can be really proved, I'm not going to believe it. If you ever try doing that, you'll find you can doubt everything. I don't even know whether you exist. I think I might be imagining you. And you, you might think you're listening to a preacher. Maybe you're just dreaming. Maybe you're just asleep imagining me. You can't even prove to anybody else that you exist. You can't prove the ultimates of life. You can't prove that life has got any logic to it. You can't prove, you can't prove things like beauty. As we were driving here today with, with David in David's car, the sun was going down six o'clock. And sunsets in Britain are a bit different from sunsets in Africa. They, 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 they're not quite the same. And there was this amazing, amazingly beautiful orange sun going down the horizon. But you know, if you asked me to prove that it was beautiful, I don't know where I'd begin. How can you prove a sunset is beautiful? You can't do it. You can't prove that anything is wrong, anything is right. You can't prove that there's such a thing as conscience. You, you really, you go into life with maximal doubt. You can doubt everything and you can't prove anything. You can't prove any of the foundations of life at all. You can't prove that life makes any sense or anything else. But uh, Western society is built upon, always has been built upon, this idea of maximal doubt. It comes from Descartes and history of philosophy and so on in the West. It's never got the West very far. It's, it's led to war and violence and oppression. It's, never been, it's, it's, not, be, it's not been the con contributing factor to good things in Western society. It's been the contributing factor to everything that's bad. And the story of Jesus has got caught up on it. Because, you see, once you start saying, well, I'm not going to believe anything unless I can prove it, well, then you're going to de deny miracles. You're going to doubt miracles. You're going to doubt the resurrection. You're going, to, you're going to not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. You're not going to believe he was the Son of God. Start, start with the prejudice. It is a prejudice. You're not proving anything. You're not proving that doubt is the right way to go about things. But beginning with that prejudice, you're going to doubt everything. And that's the way Western society has gone ever since what they call the Enlightenment. It works to a certain point. It works with science. Science, science works by by what you can prove. That's the way science works. But the fact that it's the way that science works is not, does not mean it's the way that everything works. It can't prove the existence of God, nor can it disprove the existence of God. It can't prove the existence of conscience or sin. It can't disprove the existence of conscience or sin. It, anything that's spiritual, it can't, it can't get to grips with this. And so, in the course of uh, Western history, the story of Jesus has, has suffered. No, no, nobody's really sure they can tell the story of Jesus. Even Christians, and again I could go into the history, but uh, I mustn't speak, be too long. But um, very few people can uh, 
can face the idea of, of actually handling the story of Jesus. And the scholars and the even, even Bible-believing scholars are intimidated by the skeptics, the skeptics of university professors and so on. But what would happen, what would happen if you read your Bible, read the Gospels, the four Gospels, what would happen if you, instead of going at it with maximal doubt, you went at it with maximal faith? What would happen if you tried reading the story of the Gospels, assuming that there were no mistakes in it, just believing every word? It would, be, it would surely be an interesting experiment, would it not? I mean, maybe the Bible's true, even if you're not a Christian. Well, you could be wrong. Maybe the Bible might be true. Wouldn't it be worth finding out? Wouldn't it be worth trying the experiment of what happens if you actually believe the Bible? If you try that experiment, you'll make certain discoveries. And these, these are the things you'll discover. You'll discover that the Gospel of Mark is written totally in chronological order. Now, many people believe that, but then not many people believe the claims of Mark. If you read the Gospel of Mark, you'll find it will say, well, this happened that evening, and the next day, and the day after that, and then there was this, and it led to this. You'll find it's unfolding the story in chronological order, if you just believe Mark. You will discover that Luke is in chronological order, and it's the same order as Mark. It's identical to Mark's Gospel, except he inserts extra stories along the way. You'll discover that John's Gospel is in historical order. He dates everything by the festivals. There was this Passover and that Passover, and then there was the Feast of Tabernacles, then there was another one, then there was the final Passover. He's dating things by the festivals. You will find the one gospel that's not so much in chronological order is Matthew. That he puts things more in sequence. Jesus was a great teacher and he was a great miracle worker. This is a sample of his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. These are ten of his miracles from all over the story, but all put in one, one or two chapters. He's dealing with, with things in a thematic order. And this was the response. People didn't always like these miracles, and even his disciples were in trouble. John the Baptist said, are you the one who's to come, or should we look for another? It's the response to, to what happened in Jesus. You will discover that Jesus cleansed temple. He threw out the uh, businessmen from the temple twice. He did it right at the beginning of his ministry. It says so. It's dated in the Gospel of John. And he did it again. Uh, once again, it, say, it says so in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you're believing the Gospels, you will believe. He did it once, and he did it again. But John records one, and the other three record the other. You'll then discover that the story is very coherent. That Jesus begins his ministry by going to Jerusalem and he presents himself to the, to the government. Nicodemus is a parliamentarian. And when Nicodemus the parliamentarian says, we know, not I, but we, we know that you are a teacher from God, he means the Jewish parliament. He's, come, he's a parliamentarian. He's coming from the, from the leaders of the land, from the Sanhedrin. And he says, we, we know, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And Jesus is presenting himself to the, to the government. He's presenting himself to the capital city of Jerusalem. Unless you, and the word you is plural. He's not talking just to Nicodemus. Unless all you guys in the Sanhedrin, unless you're born again, you're never going to see the kingdom of God come to Israel. He's presenting himself to the nation. And for a while, Jesus is very popular. He's popular because of the miracles. Then people turn against him. 
And um, Jesus joins himself with John the Baptist. One of the first things Jesus ever did is to ally himself with John the Baptist. An amazing thing to do. I mean, with all these great Christian, great religious leaders around, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the people of the temple, there was this weirdo out in the bush, dressed in, in, in leather, leather garments, pretending to be Elijah and eating, eating locusts and wild honey for breakfast. I mean, there was this weird guy trying to start a church in the bush of all places. And Jesus goes to him and says, I want you to baptize me. I mean, uh, the most uh, despised movement in ancient Israel was John the Baptist. The common people were ready to listen, but uh, uh, the big leaders weren't. Jesus ignores the hierarchy and the establishment and everybody in Jerusalem. He goes to John the Baptist and joins him of all people. John and Jesus both have these double ministries going on at the same time, both, both preaching repentance and faith and Getting, the, getting ready for the coming of the kingdom of God. So they're both welcomed for a while, but not for long. Jesus spends about six months in Jerusalem. And uh, then John the Baptist is murdered. He's killed. He's arrested, and eventually he'll be killed. And uh, the nation as a whole is, is rejecting John and Jesus. And Jesus transfers his ministry to Galilee. He goes as far away from Jerusalem as he can get, far, far to the north with Samaria in between. Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness. Isaiah, Isaiah predicted it, that when the Messiah came, he would go to the darkest people around. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Galilee of the Gentiles. It was predicted that, that the ministry of the Messiah would be in Galilee. Jesus transfers his, his, his headquarters to Galilee and he goes on evangelistic tours. He goes on a big evangelistic tour and then, then, then they're threatening to kill him so he, he disappears for a little while. And he goes on an eva- another evangelistic tour and once again it ends with, with uh, threats and danger. Then he goes on a third evangelistic tour, only, only this time it doesn't really have a clear ending because life is getting more and more and more dangerous. And from that point on, Jesus is on the run. He's running all over the place, and Herod is looking for him. Caiaphas and, and, and the Pharisees are looking for him. They're all looking, they can't catch him. And Jesus said, go and tell that fox, that fox Herod, who's 24 hours in the day, you'll never catch me. And then there comes a day when Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And from that point on, he's meandering all over the place, but he goes to Jerusalem. His life is in great danger. He turns up at a festival, yet, but as, as a Jew, he has, he has to be in Jerusalem three times a year for the three major festivals because it's in the law, and Jesus keeps the law. The law demands that every male keep those three major festivals each year, and so Jesus goes to each one. Even though his life is in danger, he goes to Jerusalem for every one of those three festivals. And in the last one, he goes there secretly. His brothers say, you should go to Jerusalem. He says, yeah, yeah, your time's, your time's any time. My time, I'm in the hands of God. And he goes up quietly. And uh, they don't even know he's there. And on the last day of the feast, John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, why the last day? Because he's about to preach and then run. On the last day of the feast, when they can't get him the next day, he stands up and says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me. And it's this, he's coming towards the end of his life. He heals, he raises Lazarus from the dead, the last week of his life takes place and the death 
and the resurrection take place. It is a coherent story. He begins with Jerusalem, he transfers his ministry, he goes on evangelistic tours, life gets more and more dangerous, and he's on the run for a while until he sets his face to go to Jerusalem, and you know the rest of the story. It is a coherent story. And I'm saying we should get to know that story. And we should ask questions, things I'll come back to. How did Jesus spend his time? What did he do? What was Jesus trying to do? What did he not do? He never formed a political party. He never got involved in the nitty-gritty of social welfare. What did he not do? What were the big things, what were the big decisions he made? Why did he, why did he cleanse the temple twice? Why did he, why did he join John the Baptist? What was, what was he trying to do? What were the regularities of his life? He preached, he told parables, he did miracles. What were the things he regularly did? What can we learn from each aspect of the life of Jesus? And then we see more and more. We see his deity, his glory, his high priesthood, his cross, his atonement, his resurrection power, and his availability to everyone. If anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out out of his innermost being. This is the promise. If you will only be looking unto Jesus, if only you'll be living on Jesus, if only you'll be eating his body and drinking his blood, if anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. If you will live upon Jesus, if you'll see him, if you'll keep your eye upon him, if you'll run the race with your eye fixed upon him, and if you eat him and you drink him and you live upon him, out of your innermost being, will flow rivers of living water and you'll find yourself being changed. You'll change from one degree of glory to another. You'll, you'll be raised a little bit and you'll think you're getting somewhere and you'll get a bit higher and you're being changed from one degree of glory to another. Change from glory unto glory until you're finally glorified and even on the last day the judge will be Jesus. When you get there, it won't be the Father judging you. It won't be the Spirit judging you. It'll be your saviour who's the judge. When you finally get there, the one who's to be your judge is Jesus once again. Once again, he's the he's centre stage. Once again, he's the one who's highly exalted, given a name that's above every name. And if any accusation comes against you, if, any, if in that last day any accusation comes, in the last day when Satan steps forward, when, when, when your sins are as it were, coming out, when everything's against you, and judgment day has come, and you're in trouble, oh no, you won't be in such trouble, Jesus will step forward. Now you can't touch him, he belongs to me. Who condemn? It is Christ who died, who can condemn? It is Christ who's risen. It's Christ who's, who's ever living to make intercession. Who can separate us from the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ? Nothing, neither life, nor death, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're living on him. They'll never be condemned. The life will go on from ever, ever and ever because you've built your life upon the rock. You've built your life upon the Lord Jesus Christ the centre of the universe, the centre of salvation, the centre of the Christian life, and even, even the centre of judgment day. You've built your life upon the rock, and so you will never be able to be shaken. Let's stand and let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that even his name 
gives us the power to pray and the privilege of coming before you. We come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we ask you that over these times together you will display your Son to our hearts, that we may see him, we may see his glory, we may see what he's doing for us, we may see the kind of saviour that he is. Teach us, our Father, to live upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be taking up this theme, not only in this weekend, but in our whole lives, that we may eat him, that we may drink him, that we may take him into our, into our hearts and our lives, that we may stand upon him, build upon him as the rock, instead of the sinky sand of, of this world. Teach us, Lord, to be living in the Lord Jesus and find that out of his innermost being flow rivers of living water. Teach us to live in such a way. Bless us over these coming days. Give us fellowship and love and peace and joy together as we gaze at him. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.